Hello and welcome to another edition of Christian Deep Dive. <clears throat> Very excited about this teaching today because we're going to talk about what it really means to be a Christian. And because the reason I say that is you'll see as we go through this teaching, there's a whole lot of different labels that get put on Christianity. And I'm here to talk about what it was. So let's go back to the very beginning into the book of Acts. And we read this. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, what happened here, Peter had just given a sermon. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They rushed out into the street. There's a few thousand people there. And Peter started preaching. <clears throat> Peter answered their question by saying, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. We could repeat that today, couldn't we? Then they that received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. All that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, and did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now that's from Acts chapter 2. And it's 10 verses altogether, 37 to 47. And again, when you study the book of Acts, to me, it's the authoritative statement as to what the Christian church is, what Christianity is, what it really means to be a Christian. And I think that's the greatest need in the world today. It always has been, but boy, in my generation, it certainly is. This is the only message for men and women that holds out any hope at all. Now, some people might hear that and say, Oh, come on now, that's an exaggeration. Well, when you read the papers that are becoming passe, turn on cable news, I don't care if it's CNN, Fox, or whatever it is you listen to, um, you can just see what's going on. Life is a fight and problem for everybody. And it's constant, it just seems to be getting worse. But the Christian message is good news. It's the very thing that men and women need. And I think the real tragedy as I look out into the world is they just don't know this. And I think it's often because the idea of the Christian church and message are about as far removed from the real thing as, as anything could possibly be. There's this confusion that I've seen as I've studied this over the years between human ideas, which is the teaching of philosophy and the revelation of God, and the way certain Christian faiths have been greatly watered down. So nothing to me is more urgent that we allow the gospel records to speak to us. So we might find out what the church was really like at the beginning and how she came in to be. So becoming a Christian is not by being born into a so-called Christian country or by being the child of Christian parents. Living a good life does not bring it about. Um, each of us becomes a Christian when the Spirit of God comes in power and brings that truth home about the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
When we finally see what he means to us and turn to him in utter submission, we confess our sins and failure and inability, and with simple childlike faith, we accept the message concerning him. So what comes from that? In other words, what is a Christian? Well, again, let me go back to the scripture I just read. It said, here's the first account of the Christian church. It said, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. We're told on that very day of Pentecost, there were added unto them 3,000 souls. Before that, they estimate there have been maybe 120 people or so. That's how many were probably gathered up in the other room. That then at that time was the nucleus of the church and the spirit came down upon them. And then these others then were added to them. So then let's ask what kind of people were they? What were they like? So what does it really mean to be a Christian? I know you can go to a bookstore and read about great Christians of the 19th century, 18th century, 20th century, and some of them are, some of them are pretty accurate. <clears throat> we start judging people against these type of people. But I think really what we need to do is look at the first company of Christian people and say, how do I measure up to this? Let me first answer it in, the, in a negative way, shall we say. I read papers, I read <clears throat> magazines, I listen to radio things. I, I do look at the news. I look at what the, our culture and what things are said. I know the impression that's out there that makes it basically says, here's what a Christian person is. So let me, let me ask you the question. If I gave you a sheet of paper and a pencil, and I told you to put down in a few words as, as soon as possible, what your idea, what it means to be a Christian, what would you say? What would your answers be? The general answer that I've heard in the past is something you, some people have said, it's something you take up. You decide to be a Christian. You go all in for it. You've tried various other things. You've tried cults. You've tried various churches. Now you're going to try another church. And I don't have time to really go into the various subdivisions of all that. But a lot of people have done that seriously and who are concerned about life and their problems. They know that there's a traditional teaching out there, and they think it's their duty to consider it. So then they read about the Christian faith, and they may even be very interested in it, even accepting a lot of it. But a lot of it, I've met people where it's all in the mind. It's all theoretical. They might greatly enjoy their study of Christianity. It might even become like a hobby to them. And I've known people that devote their lives to theological study. These people love to spend time making an intellectual argument taking up religious issues, writing books against somebody else or this or that, or an agreement or disagreement. And as a result of this, um, a lot of people that see this or observe this, they think that Christianity is some kind of intellectual hobby. Just as some people take up art and drama and other things, some people say, well, we, I'm going to take up Christianity and just approach it from a very intellectual standpoint because I am an intellectual myself. And what people see from that is a lot of the intellectuals having violent disagreements with each other, going back and forth with various books and positions and things like that. And the average man on the street says, well, if that's what Christianity is, that's not for me. I'm not interested at all. Then there's the opposite extreme I've seen. There's those who think that Christianity is purely a matter for feelings. They've had a wonderful experience of peace or love or happiness and they say they need nothing else. The intellectuals, of course, condemn these people. They say it's pure emotionalism. 
uh, we can't argue seriously with you. You're just simply, you haven't read the books I've read. We can't discuss them with you. You're just going by feelings. And so there's a whole lot of reasons why people find that to be objectionable. Then there's a third group that I've noticed, and they put the entire emphasis, I'll say, on the will. According to this view, uh, what makes a Christian is not what people think, and if they like to play with the emotions, let them do so. Rather, they say whether or not you're a Christian hinges on what you do. It is the way in which you live that's the deciding factor. In other words, are you living for the good of humanity? Are you ready to make sacrifices? Are you ready to put desire for a great career on one side and others to do something heroic and wonderful and sacrificial? And some people think that's what makes people a Christian. It's about a, making a deliberate decision to improve the lot of humanity and uplift the human race. This may take you into politics or social work. And again, by themselves, that's fine if you understand what Christianity really is. I'm just telling you this is, this is another offshoot of what I think is wrong. Um, the intellect is comparably unimportant, they say. Indeed, they say you can be certain of very few things in a world like this. The important thing is your will and your desire and what you are actually, actually doing. And then a fourth view of, this is the last one, a fourth view of Christianity I have observed over the years. And this is a view that's commonly held by many people who were brought up as Christians. And by that I mean, <clears throat> quote unquote, Christians in a quote unquote, Christian church or a Christian country and that type of thing. And that Christianity is a task that you have to take up and that you do take up more or less reluctantly and somewhat in a spirit of fear because of your parents or because of peer pressure. Uh, you see it as something that mainly spoils life. You know other people <laughs> that were not brought up as Christians and they see you see that they do things freely without any hesitation at all. And you wish you could be doing the same things, but you're afraid. You've been brought up in a chapel or a church, brought up as a Christian, as it were, as I said. And so you can't do the things you want to do. This Christianity stands between you and it, or you and them. This type of Christianity seems to be something negative, something restrictive, prohibitive. It's characterized by a sense of duty. Religious practice is a solemn duty that you must carry out, and the sooner it's finished, the better. Um, these kind of people don't have any joy, <clears throat> rather it's quite the reverse. They basically live in a world where they have to go to church on Sunday, and the trouble is <laughs> it's even worse if it's twice on Sunday. And I've seen teenagers, as soon as they're under the shackles of their parents that made them do this, as soon as they're done, they're free. They they run away from it. Uh, they, they, they want nothing to do with the way they were raised. And you see this in an alarming, alarming amount of people. That's the attitude I've seen people have, where Christianity is a solemn, unhappy, uncertain, and vague task that you pursue because you're afraid not to, or because you promised your parents. You don't quite know what you're doing. You're only hoping that somehow uh, it'll come to an end. And it is said that only 10% of the people in so-called Christian countries um, really are truly Christians. And again, you say, well, how do people determine that? Well. You can kind of tell Jesus said by their your fruits you will know them and as I continue <clears throat> perhaps this will become clear 
Now contrast that, what we just read in the book of Acts, <clears throat> where it says, and I'm going to repeat myself, they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. So I ask you, could anything be a greater contrast than what I just talked about? This is what Christianity is, when you have the real gospel and what it does to you and how it changes you from the inside. There's so little of that right now, really, in the world. <clears throat> we must get back to true Christianity. I'm not interested in traditions. I'm not interested in denominations and all that kind of thing. I'm interested in us getting back to real and true Christianity, regardless of what group you belong to. Some, it's easier to find the truth than others. A lot of times the church has historically turned dead, turned into these four different things I've talked about. If you read about the great times in the history of the church, times of reformation and revival, you're always going to find a repetition of this. These are the marks and gatherings of true Christians of the true Christian church when things die out and God restores it and fills it with life and a recognition of what true Christianity really is. So what makes real Christianity so different? Well, I think I've already shown you that becoming Christian is primarily something that happens to us. We cannot make ourselves Christians. The promises to you and to your children and to all that are far off, as many as our Lord shall call, is what Peter said. And in his letter, 1 Peter 2.9, he said, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This call of God comes to us through the word of God applied by the Holy Spirit. The Lord said himself, come unto me, all that you are laboring heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or you may hear this call as a kind of command, save yourself from this untoward generation, as Peter said. So it's interesting to me to note, also in the scripture I read to it, it says, the Lord added to the church daily as those should be saved. Now, another translation was, the Lord added to the church daily such as were being saved. <clears throat> What's interesting is they were being saved or added to the church. And again, what I'm talking about, this is so different than what the mistaken ideas, the first four versions I read to you earlier. You see, those four versions I read to you earlier, they're all controlled by human beings who've decided to be religious and live a religious life. But... As many of you have seen, I've seen, and we can see it either through ourselves or others, that religion is dead and mechanical. It's dull, it's filled with fear. True Christianity is charged with life, power, and abandon because it's the action of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit of God sent into the church in order to bring about God's purposes in the world. You see, no one is a Christian who's not been aware of something that's happened to them, that something went on, that God did something. The great God who made us at the very beginning is reforming us, doing something special in us, and <clears throat> making something of us. I want to show you that God does not merely produce a change in us with respect to our views of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen that the people in Acts realized the tragic mistake they had made, just a couple of weeks before, that mob was yelling, crucify him, crucify him. They didn't know what they were doing. And when Peter preached to them, it said they were cut to the quick and said, oh, my gosh, what do we do? You see, when you become a Christian, your position changes. You go from one thought, you go from a worldview thought to a Christ-centered view or a God-centered view. 
The Apostle Paul reminds the Colossians that, and I'm saying, quote, that God has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. And that is why they use the word saved, which is the most important word. Save yourself from this untoward generation. The Lord added to the church daily, such as we're being saved. Now, I know I've heard many people react really bad against this word saved. They hate it. And I think I know why. Um, you just hear it almost like as a buzzword. And I remember when I was a very young man, I would hear people say that to me and I resented it. I disliked it. I had my tradition and I was somewhat comfortable in it, although I had a lot of questions. But there was no one that we couldn't stand as much as the person who came up and just glibly said, are you saved? And we had no clue what he was talking about. And therefore, people react against it that way. But saved is a tremendous word. And in reality, it's a, it's a true word in the context of what we're trying to say. Now, some people have objected to this term saved because people have come up and said, you Christians claim that you're perfect. And actually, we're claiming nothing of the sort. Even in this one paragraph that we have before us from Acts, it's quite clear from the tense of the verb save. People have said and taught correctly, I think, you can say of Christians that they have been saved, they are being saved, and they're going to be saved. In fact, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, 7-9 says this, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, who, having not seen, you love, and whom, though you see him not, yet believing, we rejoice with joy unspeakable, full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So here Peter talks about receiving salvation, and yet he has been referring to his readers as people who have already undergone salvation. Look at it like this. The first thing you have to realize about yourself is that we're in a very dangerous position. This is the state or condition. We are all going to face God face to face. And let's take up one of these illustrations I've heard about somebody standing in a courtroom. There's many things that can be said about the guy standing there. But the first and most important thing is he's in there. He's on trial before a judge. Now, that guy, when he's standing there, he might be feeling sick or he might be feeling well. But that has nothing to do with his position. He's standing there regardless. He may have spent the night soundly sleeping or he may not have slept at all doesn't make any difference. His position is he's still standing them. A charge has been brought against him and he faces some really terrible possibilities. And that's how you have to look at the question of salvation. You can divide people into good and bad. People do that, right? But that's really irrelevant because we're all concerned about the position we're in. And the teaching of the Bible is that all people, whether we call them good or bad or anything else, are in the same position if the judgment of God is before us. None of us are righteous by our birth. We're all under condemnation. We're all in a world on fire right now. We're all in danger of eternal destruction. We all are born lost. We're all in the dark by the birth and by actions. We've sinned against God. The law of God is the prosecuting counsel and a just and holy God is sitting on the bench. Every one of us is guilty. And the sentence on the guilty sinner is everlasting destruction from the promise from the presence of the Lord. And that's from 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Now, 
the teaching of the Bible is that the moment we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, our whole position is changed. Remember, we're standing in a position. Our standing and status under God becomes entirely different. That is the first way which we can look at salvation. And it's in that sense we can say of the Christian that we are already saved once that happens. To use the language of the Apostle Paul, which is one of my faves, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. According to this teaching, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. We're all under the condemnation of the law until we believe, but the moment we believe, we are no longer under condemnation. We're no longer standing in that courtroom. We've been set at liberty. We are introduced to the kingdom of God and the glorious liberty of being children, being adopted sons of Christ. So the Christian there can say, I have been saved. But that does not mean I am perfect. Having been changed, my, my whole standing is now different. A process, my whole position is different, but a process now begins in me. I need to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from my evil nature. Saved from my evil tendencies. Saved from the relics and remnants of sin that followed me and that still remain in my mortal body. So I am being saved. The Bible calls that process sanctification. Well, the first that I talked about is called justification. So Christians aren't perfect, but they are gradually, slowly being made perfect. There may be many ups and downs, as we all know, but they're slowly be, we are slowly being prepared for the glory to where we are going. So Christians have been saved, they're being saved, and the day will come when they will be saved completely. The Bible calls that glorification. And that means freedom not only from the condemnation of the law and the guilt of sin, but entire deliverance from the power and the pollution of sin, which means a time's going to come when believers will be sinless, they will be perfect, but that's not going to happen in this world. So those are the tenses to the word saved. I have been saved, I am being saved, I shall be saved. Many of you may have heard that before, maybe some of you are hearing that for the first time, and I hope it makes sense to you. You're going to find those three tenses constantly used in various New Testament writings. The whole position of these people in Acts that we we're talking about was they have been saved. Now they're being moved from one kingdom to another. That is the first thing. Their sanctification process starts. But again, staying with these people from Acts, the second thing you notice about them is after the sermon, and this is really important, this Christianity of theirs was now central in their lives. It was going to be the controlling factor of their life. It was everything to them. And this is to be true of every Christian. And that is how we see the contrast with others, other views of Christianity I talked about in the beginning, those four mechanical things that I told you about. The popular view today in the world is that Christianity is something that you add to your life. You add it to you. You go to a place of worship for a brief service, and that's it. After that, you don't think about it the rest of the week until next Sunday. So am I being unfair? Am I exaggerating? I don't think so. Look at the lives of people. There's a lot of people that you know that are so-called Christians that go to church, but look at their interests. Look what they care about. Look what 
look at how they are in the workplace, look at how they are in the schools, and then they try to think that they can change it for an hour on Sunday when they go to a church. That's not Christianity. It is not something you try to add. It's something that changes you completely from the inside out. Remember, this was the same mob back in Acts who was yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And yet now they're cut to the quick and say, what do we do? They totally change. It says they're hanging out with the apostles. They're breaking bread and God adds them to the church. They are saved. And then they're going through the process now of sanctification. The other thing I want you to notice is with these people, um, it involved their whole person. Once they were saved or justified, it started to involve their whole person. Now, that's why before when I said some people think it was just the intellect and some people think it was just feeling, some people think it was just the will. But what you will see is it involves all of that once you become a true Christian. Christianity does not bypass the mind. Christians can tell you why they're Christians. And if you can't give me a good reason, if you can't tell me I believe in this and that, then I would suspect that you are not a Christian. We read here that they gladly received his word. The mind is engaged and involved, and we go on to receive more and more. It's thrilling, and the mind expands. I'm not saying that everybody becomes a Bible theologian or a Bible scholar, but to some degree, you either want to hear a teaching or you want to look things up yourself. You just got to know. You want to know more and more and more. I don't know if there was anybody that you can compare with such a great intellectual mind. Some people <laughs> try to claim that, well, Christianity is for mindless people. Well, they've never dug into it. They've never studied the Apostle Paul. What kind of intellect did he have? All you need to do is start studying any of the epistles of Paul. Start with Ephesians, I'd recommend. And when you finish that, I can give you some other writings to do. But just to go through it line by line, and look at the, how he works things out, the vistas of truth that are here and there into eternity itself and glory everlasting. Then go to the book of Romans and take a look at that and just look at all the deep, deep, deep theology is there that could not have just come from the mind of man. And it is very, those two are very intellectual. Uh, they're very powerful. And they're something that, uh, you just you keep reading it over and over. Every time I read those two books, I always pick up something new. And true Christianity does not just come to your mind. Christians are not mere, uh, you've been called dry as dust intellectuals or academics. Their heart is involved. The scripture here we just read at the very beginning says they gladly received the word. They did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. This is true happiness. And happiness, yes, is an emotion. <laughs> True happiness. There's no real happiness apart from it, I would tell you. Um, the idea that Christianity makes people miserable and wretched is the greatest lie the devil has ever put out there. Yeah, the fake Christianity will make you miserable because you're following do's and don'ts. You have not been changed from the inside out. And then you will find things dull and boring if you're not changed from the inside out. People say, well, but I can find happiness in the world. Really? Where is it? I see people passing through mindlessly. When I used to work, when I used to have a career, I didn't detect much happiness from people that weren't Christian. When I would travel with people, every drink was not enough. Out on the streets, you see people doing drugs. Not Every drug is not enough. There has to be a strong one. And it was something that uh, 
you know, there's nothing out here in the world that satisfies. It gives you a temporary hit, but it's not long lasting. It's almost like then it's now what? But these Christians in the book of Acts, they were moved. They were happy. They were joyful. The Holy Spirit is character characterized by love, joy, peace, and happiness, and, and, and other things. The world knows so little of this thing, but these people knew. In the face of persecution and possible death, let's face it, it was really dangerous to become a Christian at the time of Acts, but they were alive with joy, and that has been the mark of true Christians in all eras and periods ever since. So can thinking people, really, in this world we live in now, look out today with, with the possibility at any moment of, of what's going on with China and Russia, nuclear war and things like that that could happen. You know, if you really understand what's going on in the world, can a thinking person really be happy in a, happy in a world like this? I don't think you can. You'd be always, you're always going to be worried. But there is one way to find true happiness, and that is to be separated from this world and come into this life which you see, and you look at the world beyond, and you know that glory is coming. Then you can say with the Apostle Peter, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, right now you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. And that's Pete, 1 Peter 1, 6. Or you say with Paul, we're in this tabernacle or body, we groan being burdened. But then we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our house, which is from heaven gladness, joy, in the face of persecution, in the face of living in dangerous times, you realize you've escaped hell, you're not going to perdition, you're, you're a child of God, you've got a purpose in this life, your heart is moved, you're going to be living with him forever, and what a, what a, what a thing to have, what an anchor to have. Again, Peter said in his letter, having not seen you love, in whom now you have seen not yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. 1 Peter 1.8. That's it. The heart is engaged. And lastly, uh, so is the will. Earlier I talked about intellect and heart or feelings, and now we're going to conclude again with the will. These early Christians were baptized. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and they continuing daily with one accord. Their conversion was not some flash-in-the-pan thing. It was not just going forward and making a decision at the end of a meeting and then walking out saying, well, that's it. I, I must be a Christian now. I can go live my life and do what I want to do. And it doesn't change you. Now, if you go forward at a meeting and it changes you and you, you completely are a different person after that, that's fine. But a lot of times with the pressure of people going forward or someone telling you to do that, um, nothing happens. So. Ask the question, are you a Christian? I'm not asking whether you're doing a lot of good. I'm not asking whether you are a church member. I'm not asking you if your parents were Christians or whether you were born in a so-called Christian country. I'm not even asking you if you were christened as a baby or even baptized as an adult and didn't know what you were doing. I'm simply asking this, are you like the people described at the end of the second chapter of Acts? These people were ready to die for their faith, and many of them did die, as Christians have had to die throughout the centuries. But they knew, and believers know today, that they're saved once and forever from the condemnation of the law. Whatever happens to us, our position with God is right. God has forgiven us. Our sins have been forgiven, and we are justified by God through our faith. God declares us to be free, my friend, and we need to know that. 
<clears throat> you need to have the strength to walk out. You need to receive it gladly. And so we give practical demonstration of our faith by leaving this world to which we belonged and joining, being added to, or have you been added to the church of God? Oh, what a beautiful thing it is to have a view of eternity, a new view of God, a new view of Jesus of Nazareth as the son of God and the savior of our soul. It's all new. It's all from within. It's all from inside out. And if we're controlled by this, if your Christianity is at the center, you are indeed born again and you're a child of God. God bless you. I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope you give it some deep thought and contemplation. And until next time, God bless you. This is Dan Moynihan with Christian Deep Dive.